Well, good evening, everyone, and uh, welcome to our panel discussion this evening on uh, the regulation of risk in financial markets and various related issues. Is the mic on, and can you hear me? Put your hand up if you can't hear me. I assume you can. Um, my name is Roger McCormick. I'm a visiting professor here and the director of the Law and Financial Markets Project. Uh, my role this evening is simply to chair what will essentially be a panel discussion, although to begin with we will have four short presentations from our four distinguished panellists, each of them an expert in particular aspects of uh, risk and regulation in the financial market area. And my first job is to introduce them to you. Um, on my left is Paul Woolley, who is a senior fellow here and an honourable an honorable professor at uh, York University. He is also the, um, the man who founded the Paul Woolley Centre for the Study of Capital Market Dysfunctionality, uh, an interesting title for a centre. Before uh, coming into the academic world, he had a very distinguished career in the financial sector. But since all the panelists have asked me to be short in introducing them to you, I will draw a line at that. Uh, but I could go on for some time describing all the things he has done. Um, on my immediate left is Michael Power, uh, who is also a professor here and an accountant, and in, in charge of the um, East... ESRC Centre for the Analysis of Risk and Regulation, known by the acronym of CAR, C-A-R-R. He is also a non-executive director of St. James Place, PLC, and has recently published an extremely interesting book called Organised Uncertainty, Designing a World of Risk Management. On my extreme right is Charles Goodhart, um, who has an extraordinarily illustrious career as well, he particularly asked me to be brief, so I could simply say that he is a part-time sheep farmer, which I am assured makes a huge loss. Um, but he has also, in his uh, career, been advisor to the Bank of England on financial stability and has also had a role on the Monetary Policy Committee of the Bank of England. So uh, he has extraordinary experience in the times we have been living through. And finally, on my immediate right is Julia Black, who is a colleague of mine in the Law Department, uh, has been a visiting fellow at All Souls Oxford as well, um, and she is also a research associate of CAR, uh, C-A-R-R. Um, and her primary area of research and teaching is in regulation, um, and I try to spend most of my time persuading her to concentrate on financial regulation, which I suspect takes up more time than any other kind at the moment. So, uh, we now just proceed to the, um, if you like, the more important part of the evening, which is to get on with the short presentations. Following these presentations, there will then be lots of time for questions and answer and panel discussion, which is the essence of this evening. So, if I may, I would call first um, on Paul Woolley to talk to us about um, his topic, which is on um, how financial markets should be understood and the critical role of intermediaries and associated problems of principal and agent relations. Thank you very much. Um, I didn't realise it. I'd given it that title, but uh, uh, I'm quite happy with it. Um, uh, 
the forum is addressing managing risk and behavior in financial markets. Um, for banks to manage risk and for policymakers to regulate the capital markets, uh, both need an understanding of how capital markets function. Academic theory has singularly failed to provide that understanding. Financial economists have let us down and bear a large part of the responsibility for the present crisis. The still prevailing wisdom uh, of academic finance is that capital markets are efficient, which means that prices of shares, bonds, etc., uh, reflect fundamental value and that they are always, if you like, correctly priced. Uh, speculation, according to the prevailing paradigm, speculation is thought to ensure that markets are self-stabilizing. Led by the Chicago School of Economists from the 1960s onwards, the proponents of efficient markets have actually mocked anybody who disagrees with them. The whole edifice of capital market theory, which has been built progressively over the decades, uh, has been built upon the notion of efficiency in perfect markets. Uh, this extends not just to the pricing of assets, uh, but also um, to, for example, uh, the profits of the intermediaries in finance. It says that competition among banks and fund managers, for instance, and brokers will eliminate excess profits. Now, what are the consequences for the efficient market hypothesis and this way of looking at the world? Well, it's meant that risks in finance have been misunderstood and underestimated by banks, by investors, by governments alike. Regulators uh, have endorsed the principle of mark-to-market based on this presumption of efficiency. They've endorsed the principle of mark-to-market in everything from balance sheets to, to bank regulation. And policymakers like Greenspan, who was on this platform 18 months ago, believe bubbles either did not exist or could not be identified and certainly needed no intervention. There's been not a single academic paper in 40 years asking why finance has grown so big, this, uh, including the hundreds of trillions of dollars of derivatives, for example, in the last 10 years, the ballooning of the, the derivatives market, and the fact that uh, the banks before the crash were accounting for 40% of corporate profits, so the aggregate corporate profits in the UK for, uh, and the US for that matter as well. Nobody bothered to inquire why society was being, whether society was being well served by the finance sector. In other words, it, it, um, it, the efficient market hypothesis endorsed the practitioners enjoyed and governments encouraged the finance sector in its activities. By almost universal agreement, the efficient market hypothesis has been well and truly discredited by the booms volatility and crises culminating in the latest, frankly, catastrophe in the sense that it co it's cost 10% off GDP in the West, plus a generation of higher taxes. So what happens now? Do governments put the finance sector back on its feet, tinker around with a bit more regulation and then keep their fingers crossed? What should and absolutely has to happen is that we develop a better understanding of how finance works. <coughs> develop more realistic theories. In the background uh, over the last 20 years, there's developed 
uh, a theory uh, based on behavioral biases, psychological biases. The behavioralists um, are in very much in the minority with their models of finance based on psychological biases and preferences of investors and other market participants. Unfortunately, basing theories of finance on irrational behavior will never offer a satisfactory replacement. Behavioral theories are partial, applying only to subsets, often offsetting, offsetting each other, and will never give rise to a unified science-based theory of finance. Fortunately, fortunately there is an alternative. The single biggest mistake of existing theory has been to ignore the role of agents in finance. Agency, agency theory isn't new. It's, it's actually been developed for corporate finance, but not applied in asset pricing, for example. The problem uh, is that uh, agents, and by agents I mean banks, fund managers, brokers, etc., uh, this agency problem is, arises from the fact that the agents have more and better information than the principals, the principals being the pension funds as well as individual uh, customers and, 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 and uh, investors. They have better information and they have different objectives from, the from their customers. Moreover, the customers have difficulty monitoring the agent's competence and diligence. Work is going on at LSE in Toulouse, indeed in the centers of capital market dysfunctionality no less, uh, to rewrite finance theory by taking account of the, this agency problem. There are two major consequences. First, it shows how mispricing and bubbles arise even though all market participants are acting rationally. It's a mistake to believe, as, as, um, as many are now saying, that simply because markets are perceived to be irrational, it follows that uh, this means that all the participants are irrational, not at all. If you can explain bubbles in a rational framework, as you can once you start to introduce agents, it gives hope of finding corrective measures. In fact, the policy implications are already spilling out from the work we're doing. So the agency problem, once you introduce agents into the analysis, gives rise to mispricing. But the second and uh, fascinating aspect of the work based on, on uh, contract theory, um, we can show how the agents are in a position to capture the bulk of the returns from the productive economy. Let me repeat that. We show how agents, the finance sector, financial institutions, are in a position to capture the bulk of the returns from the productive economy. <coughs> Heavens above, they're meant to be a utility, simply matching uh, together uh, suppliers of funds and use of the funds. Uh, this line of research, adopting contract theory, explains risk-taking, excess profits, and crises, again in a rational framework. It significantly helps us to understand how finance has grown so big and so complex, and that its giant size is, 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 is its giant size is testimony to its dysfunctionality, not to its efficiency, as Chicago academics have claimed. Incorporating financial institutions into capital market theory 
and indeed into macroeconomic models from which it's been absent, is the way forward. It permits economics to retain a formal scientific framework and bring greater power to policy analysis. Policy, policy prescriptions include penalizing short-termism, penalizing momentum trading, reducing opacity, reducing moral hazard, caution about mark-to-market, caution about use of benchmarking to indices, caution about arguments for new, new, new instruments, new derivatives, which have automatically been ticked off as, as, as appropriate under the efficient market uh, principle. A truly efficient market is quite stable, even rather boring. It certainly wouldn't attract all the graduates flocking to it. They can, uh, they can now use their talents, hopefully, in the future more constructively. Without a better understanding of how finance works, and without a better theory of finance, uh, we're in danger, we would be in danger of, of putting Humpty Dumpty, the finance sector, back on the wall. But unfortunately, his next fall will threaten capitalism itself. Uh, thank you, Paul. Uh, we could now come on to Mike Power. Um, and I understand he is going to talk to us about um, risk management within financial institutions. Thank you. Good evening. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Um, uh, as Paul has said, uh, the, the financial crisis is a product of a failure to fully appreciate agency issues, uh, both a theoretical failure and a practical failure. Uh, I'm going to argue that there's also a, a failure of knowledge. Uh, in some sense, the financial crisis is both a, an ethical and epistemological uh, crisis. And Lord Turner, no less, said that uh, the roots of the financial crisis lie in a, a wide-ranging intellectual failure. But, of course, it's much easier for individuals to be hauled into the dock of the Treasury Committee than it is for ideas and systems of thought. Um, but I'm going to be talking about what I think are the, the micro-foundations of this macro-crisis, uh, particular risk management practice. And I suppose the question I want to ask is, uh, rather like banks, are some ideas uh, too big to fail, uh, and do we keep them going at all costs? I'm going to be challenging the um, conventional wisdom that supports the idea of enterprise risk management. This is a slightly broader agenda than financial risk management within banks, but uh, I, I think uh, a broader canvas is needed for, for this discussion. And I think there are three main failings, there are probably others, but there are three main failings that I'm going to lay at the door of enterprise risk management. Firstly, there is the, the promotion of uh, immaculate images of control, what some theorists, organizational theorists, have called the illusion of control, uh, risk management giving a rise to the illusions of control. Secondly, and probably very closely related to this issue, is the promotion of a massive investment in risk bureaucracies which seem not, in retrospect, to have been fit for purpose centralized compliance functions which have uh, fed off rules and regulations uh, and, and little else. And I think it's interesting that uh, both HSBC and Standard Chartered have rather light central risk functions and they see also seem to be organizations which have escaped the worst of the crisis. So in my terms this emphasis on audit trail and evidence and proof which lies behind the production of this bureaucracy is, uh, is one of the consequences of a certain style of risk management. And thirdly, uh, 
certain style of risk management has promoted a very hollow and technocratic conception of risk appetite. And one of the reforms I will be suggesting is that a more expanded and more ethically sensitive notion of risk appetite as a, an operational reality within organizations. So in the face of this illusion of control, what does risk management need to do? Well, I think there's a widespread consensus amongst uh, consultants and others who think about this that they need to get away from that and generate forms of risk management and mechanisms for encountering uncertainty rather than producing boilerplate solutions and uh, certified uh, statements of assurance that things are under control. Uh, organizations need to get a lot better about encountering and talking about the very real uncertainties that they face, and that would include banks. And not just as a, an academic exercise, but to be capable in a mature way of generating actions, uh, sensible actions, uh, on the back of those reflections. Against the problem of risk bureaucracy, I think organizations and regulators need to reflect on the kind of compliance mentality and how that has led to a very, a, quite an imbalance in the constitution of risk management within banks and other organizations. Uh, an imbalance which has led to the crowding out of a more intelligent uh, type of risk management which is focused on the imagination of different possible states of the world, the thinking of the unthinkable. And it seems to me that while there is a great deal of technical discussion about the nature of stress testing and the FSA is calling for increasing stress testing. I think there are still a lot of organizational and psychological barriers to that process. Uh, stress testing that I've come across in some organizations has been uh, just you know, tweaking the present in a certain kind of way that isn't too uncomfortable. So I would see stress testing as much more than a technical exercise, but uh, a, a way of uh, inculcating a new set of values within the risk management function uh, to do with the imagination of different futures. And against the more technocratic uh, understanding of risk appetite, which, which does have its place, uh, I think there also needs to be a, a design rebalance within risk management itself. Um, first of all, there's, I think there's a, a need to uh, uh, as Paul has, wants to rewrite finance theory, well, I, I'd quite like to rewrite a bit of organization theory uh, in relation to uh, risk management. There needs to be a recognition, uh, an importation of organization theory insights that there are in organizations, such as banks, a plurality of risk appetites which have to be mediated. Uh, and that a risk management process needs to be explicit about this plurality and find mechanisms for talking uh, and understanding the nature of conflict, which is not easily represented in traditional Excel spreadsheet risk map format. So the starting point for risk management is uh, an effort to surface those undiscussable issues, um, which indeed happen to be um, coincide with uh, remuneration issues for, for traders, which seem to have been undiscussable for many, many years. So uh, making these, these sorts of uh, conflictual issues uh, manifest is an important dimension of reforming risk management. And at the level of uh, detailed policy articulation, um, I would hope and expect risk, management risk appetite policies to be articulated in a much richer way than hitherto, 
not simply focused on um, target capital levels, although that of course is a very important issue, uh, but drilling down into the organization and articulating very clearly uh, an ethical framework for the kinds of things that this organization does and doesn't do, both operationally and ethically. Uh, and uh, taking that down to a detailed level of granularity and making that uh, a living organizational document. That making the risk appetite statement uh, a living document as a basis for conversation and challenge uh, within uh, organizations rather than allowing um, pockets of experts to more or less remain unaccountable as long as they're making large trading profits. And as an actionable point, I would say one of the, 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 the testing grounds for such a, um, a blueprint for a new conception of risk management and risk appetite would be in the area of new product development, which is typically an area where there is conflict between entrepreneurial logics to develop new products and uh, control logics, which are, are perhaps more cautious. Uh, and it's very easy for organizations to drift into new product areas. Organizational drift is the norm. And really a, risk, a sort of fully articulated and living risk appetite process would at least uh, provide some kind of constraint on those development processes without uh, necessarily siding on the, uh, on, the, on the side of risk adversity. So, We've had an unprecedented expansion in risk management uh, thinking uh, over the last 10 years in a whole series of areas, market, credit, operational risk. Prior to, 19, uh, prior to 2007, uh, these things have been very thoroughly developed. But I submit to you that uh, maybe all our risk managers were very, very busy doing easy things. Uh, and that perhaps if they'd been less busy uh, and had a bit more leisure, they would think about the more difficult areas. Models, of course, continue to be useful. This is not a, a, an anti-model crusade. They're, they're very, very important, and formalization techniques are, uh, remain important. But the complexity of this, these models needs to be somehow matched with an oversight uh, function, an oversight uh, uh, properties which can match that complexity uh, and thereby reduce some of the uh, uh, the agency uh, asymmetry that uh, Paul has referred to. And thirdly, I think quite a lot of our corporate governance discourse is extremely inward-looking uh, and, and generates uh, a form of risk management and other practices which uh, look inwards at organizational process rather than, as they must importantly do, look outwards. And there, there are some signs that smart organizations are searching, searching for interdependencies in their organizational environments as a way of countering uh, some of the side effects of this uh, corporate governance uh, enterprise. So we've had a huge uh, investment in various types of risk management, Basel II, Sarbanes-Oxley, but the benefit side of this cost benefit of the cost benefit evaluation of these initiatives is very hard to see uh, at the present time. And I think there's a lesson for regulators. I think they, they probably need to shift the balance of their interventions to, towards a much more interactive capacity with the, the institutions that they oversee. And that, of course, has implications for uh, the kind of experts that uh, they themselves employ. Uh, but I think they, that would have a, a better capacity to influence um, uh, their own systemic risk agenda 
rather than, uh, as I see it, a much more mechanical risk mitigation programs which have been articulated at the organizational level. So in conclusion, uh, my normative recommendation would be there needs to be a kind of a new risk management style at the organizational level, and for banks as well, in which there's a more active search for the kind of interdependencies which uh, we've seen crystallize uh, over the last uh, 18 months or so. Uh, a much more outward-looking emphasis in risk management, less concerned with inward process, um, supply chain scanning, and, and those kinds of inter interdependencies would be uh, an interesting place to start. Uh, and I think in that way, uh, there is a possibility that there could be a much closer relationship and much more matching between risk management at the enterprise level and the, the agenda of macro, macro prudential management itself. Uh, and it seems to me that is a gap that certainly needs to be closed. Thank you. Thanks very much, uh, Mike. Um, we now move on to our third speaker, Charles Goodhart. Charles has chosen a nice, safe, non-controversial subject. He's going to talk to us about corporate governance and remuneration in financial institutions. Well, actually, I changed my mind. <laughs> <laughs> I'm actually going that what I'm going to, to speak about this evening follows on uh, really quite well uh, from what Mike Powers has just been talking about. Uh, but I'm going to organize it in part by going back to that splendid <coughs> distinction that Donald Rumsfeld made between the known unknowns and the unknown unknowns. Now, the known unknowns is another way of really talking about risk, because risk is where you know the probability distribution of outcomes, even though you don't know the outcome itself. While the unknown unknowns is uncertainty, where you don't even know the probability distribution. Now, I'm going to assert that the tendency for human beings uh, is to try and make sense of their world by putting what, in effect, usually turns out to be far too much weight uh, on recent and very often their own personal experience as a means of assessing risk and transforming the real uncertainties around us into risk that you can try and calibrate and measure and adjust for. Now, there are a number of problems with the way that people go about uh, trying to do this risk assessment. Frequently, we don't even make use of all the available evidence. And a typical example of that, indeed a very sad example of that, uh, was the subprime debacle in the United States. Now, that very largely arose from the fact that appropriate, decent, good data on housing prices in the U.S. only really went back to the 1950s. And if you looked at housing prices in the U.S. and took the U.S. as a whole, housing prices in aggregate over all regions in the U.S. never really ever went down significantly over that whole 50 years. Housing prices in certain regions did. New England, for example, in the early 1990s. Uh, Texas, when oil prices went down, and so on and so on. But if you diversified over the whole of the United States, then housing prices had never significantly fallen. 
And if you then extrapolate through splendid quantified measure housing prices into the future on the basis of this past experience, then you presume that the probability of housing prices going down significantly was very close to zero. Now, when I say that they didn't take account of all the available data, in many other countries, housing prices had gone down, in Australia and in, very other, and in other countries, and of course they'd gone down in the United States in the interwar depression. So the assumption that you could treat the 50 years from the 50s to 2005 as representing all the known available evidence um, was simply mistaken. But if you believe that housing prices will never fall, then, in fact, subprime was perfectly justified. All these CDOs, treble A's, were perfectly justified. And making loans to people who had no income, no jobs, and no assets, the ninja loans, was also perfectly justified. How come? Well, the answer is, if anything went wrong, you would reclaim the house itself, and since the house was now worth more, and when you made the loan, you would be able to uh, get back all your money. So it was effectively riskless, because it was all based on the, the value of the house. And that, that sort of assumption, that based on this short period of history, was all you needed to do to assess probabilities, uh, really went very far. Right? And people simply accepted uh, these credit ratings. If you read... Um, the studies on what actually happened in these big finance houses. For example, Cowan's nice book on the House of Cards about Bear Stearns. They never actually seriously thought that they were risking the bank. Um, they were dumbfounded by the actual failure of their own banks. They simply didn't appreciate risks because they relied on rather simple-minded quantification rather than looking at the broad sweep uh, of history and a wider range uh, of evidence, which is one of the reasons, and here I'm talking my own book, uh, why those of us who are old still have something to contribute. And the reason why we've got something to contribute is not because we're wiser. And when you reach my age, you start becoming less wise because your brain cells collapse. But, but we have had more experience. And it is the excessive weight on your own individual recent past experience that causes a lot of the damage. Next, I want to again argue that the available experience, even if taken broadly, and indeed the whole sweep of history, only represents a tiny subset of what might have happened. Just because we have only seen white swans doesn't mean to say that black swans are not possible. It's a mistake to believe that the past, any more than the future, was predetermined and had to happen. It didn't. A whole range of different outcomes could always have occurred, which means that if you try and use quantification, econometric techniques, and all the rest of it, to assess future probabilities. You were, in fact, only drawing from a very small sample of the range of things that could have happened and may yet happen. Now, finally, and most important, humans learn from their experience and from their mistakes, unlike inanimate objects. 
Thus, when the same circumstances occur, inanimate objects behave in exactly the same way. So using statistical and other mechanisms for trying to assess the future effects of what happens if you, say, heat up some kind of chemical, uh, is perfectly valid. But you can't do that for humans, because once you have learned from an experience, you will behave in a very different way. Which is one reason why the politicians attempt to deal with the crisis we've just had by establishing early warning systems is absolutely bound to failure. Because the way that we behaved in the past will not be the way that we will behave in the future. Because even the Americans will now appreciate that when housing prices rise above some level, the likelihood of a significant decline is, is quite considerable, and they will adjust their behavior. So insofar as you can perceive that a particular line of action caused a crisis in the past, it will not cause a crisis in the future. It will be something else which is new, which we haven't appreciated, that occurs because we're all blind to new developments that will call crisis in the future. And that means that early warning systems, which are almost by definition based on what happened in the past, uh, won't actually work very well. Now, of course, all that is what is known as the basis of the Lucas critique, which is it is very difficult to build models because behavior changes as policy and as experience changes. And the attempt by macroeconomists has been to shift models onto what is known as deep parameters and micro-foundations. But that has proven effectively to be wrong, not because the concept of what they were trying to achieve was wrong, but its application was. The problem was that the micro-foundations that were used for these macro-models were actually not based on fundamental human behavior. And here I'm feeding back into the kind of area that Paul has been talking about. For example, um, people only have a limited ability to process information, time and ability. And so the rational inattention model is far better than the rational expectation model. Again, we, because we've got limited time and limited processing ability, we have to learn f frequently from others, and that leads to herding. And also, and here is where I finish, um, human beings are both selfish, and if they feel that they can get away with things um, to their own benefit, they will do so. So that when you've made a contract to pay somebody, you can get away without paying them, you will actually do so. Which means that a propensity to default in your promises is one of the key features uh, in the way that we all behave. And that means that default is a very key element uh, in any model. And of course, default was critical and crucial in the crisis that we just had. And there was no default whatsoever, of course, no default, really no role for financial intermediaries in the main macro models that we were using. So just as Paul is trying to get more agency theory into models, I'm trying to get default and the proper role for financial intermediaries into models in a series of exercises um, that I'm doing. 
So I, I entirely agree with Paul. There's a long way to go, both with macro theory and financial theory. And one of the great failures of this crisis uh, was a failure of, uh, of, of economics, uh, which is now needing to take a much more humble stance. Uh, it was a failure of economics almost as much as it was a failure of financial regulation and a failure of uh, banks and banking. So with that, Mayor Culpa, I will end. Thank you, Charles. Uh, it was the Queen's question, wasn't it, who asked the economists, uh, why didn't anyone see this coming? Well, actually, a lot of people did, but because nobody had appreciated the circumstances, because many of these circumstances were new, nobody had taken any notice of those who did call. Uh, that, that I, I, I could give you a whole series of names and I could give you a whole series of papers where uh, there was clear, apparent, significant concern about the possibility uh, of, a, of a serious financial break coming down the road. But it just wasn't taken, nobody took much notice of it. Thank you. Now let's come on to our final uh, speaker, who is my colleague in the Law Department, Julia Black. And uh, Julia, I hope this time the speaker might say something that is broadly aligned with what's on this piece of paper, but I'm told that she's going to talk to us about the challenges for regulators in regulating risk. I am indeed, and I have to say that we are a prime example of defaulting on promises because we made a promise to ourselves that we would all speak for five minutes, and, and everybody so far has completely defaulted on, on that promise. Um, and I'll probably, I'll probably do the same. Um, but I will try and keep it brief. Um, it's, a, it's a hard act to follow. You've had a lot of different ideas um, thrown at you, and I, I will pick up on, on some of those and what I'm going to talk about. I'm, going to, I'm focusing on the regulators themselves. There's, as Charles said, there's been issues in relation to, to regulatory failure, but then regulation is both the, the problem and also the solution. So it was the, the problem in many, in many sort of diagnoses that gave rise, give rise to the, the, the crisis or aspects of it, but it's also the thing to which people turn, obviously, to provide the solution to it. And what I want to focus on is the, just the, really the functional aspects of, of regulators themselves and the challenges um, that, of, I suppose, the organizational challenges that in, in managing risk that Mike was talking about within the, the private sector are, are mirrored and echoed echoed within the public sector, within regulators themselves. Um, and I think there are three, three main, well, there are many challenges that regulators face in, in regulating risk and risk in this area and moving just from the micro level to the macro level. First of all, the, the regulators themselves focus um, and have traditionally on, on individual firms, so they're individual units of assessment. Now, the issues that they they have there are actually trying to move from a point of time, point in time analysis of the position of the firm and the, the risks it faces at that time, to an anticipatory stance as to, well, what are how what are the risks it may face in the future and how will it handle and how will it deal with those risks, um, and trying to talking to financial regulators, trying to get their supervisors, trying to get assessments which are forward looking, which are anticipatory in that in that way. Um, is a very difficult thing to do. Regulators have started to move around with issues of, um, for example, putting in a time sensitivity on their assessments, trying to get um, directions of travel indicators, etc., etc. Um, however, the, as Mike said, one of the, the issues about risk management is the illusion of, of control that it can give. Um, and as Charles 
was mentioned just before, really what regulators are having to assess here is not so much risk but uncertainty. Um, and though they build their risk management um, models, then there's a, there's a recognition, at least among some, that risk management and risk assessment of, of firms themselves is, is, a, is, a, is an art, it's not a science. Now, in, they can develop metrics, etc., but ultimately it comes down to, to judgment calls. Now, partly the way they try to make those judgments um, around uncertainty is, is the building of models. Now, I won't talk any more about the, the limits of models. We've heard enough about limits of models. Um, but within the regulatory constructs themselves, not only within the, um, the construction of the markets, but within the construction of firms and, and the, the imagined futures, as it were, then you have you've seen significant sort of cognitive failures really in terms of the different types of futures which um, regulators were prepared to imagine that, that firms could, um, could face. The second issue facing regulators is the, the issue that, that their unit of assessment which has been firms has obviously missed the, the systematic um, problems and issues that you get arising from the fact that what they're really trying to manage is not so much individual firms but is actually a system a system itself. Now regulators have initially started off by looking at from the inside inside as it were what could arise within the firm that might give rise to certain risks. There was then a, a gradual move for us to sort of focusing on outside in impacts. Okay what could be happening in the wider environment that could affect this firm and then you had and a closer look at uh, macroprudential risks, setting up emerging risk committees, etc., etc. There's a, a nascent shift, but a, a recognition it needs to be a much more fundamental shift to the recognition of inside-out impacts, as it were. So, as Mike was talking about, the need for risk management to, to look outside the firm, then there's a need, again, for financial regulators to really much focus much more on those inside-out impacts. So, what are the impacts that are things that could happen within the firm that may then affect the system as a whole. Now again, there's, and there's a certain amount of work, and I know, um, I've heard Charles speak about this in, um, in different fora, as to how you, how you identify uh, the critical aspects of a network that, that render some, some elements um, systemic at different points in time. But again, some of the limitations around that is, is that the, the financial system itself and the financial crisis exhibit some of the, the characteristics of what the sociologist Charles Perrault called normal accidents. In other words, you've got the interaction of multiple failures that aren't necessarily in direct operational sequence and where there's a significant degree of incomprehensibility as to how the system operates. And trying to manage and understand where your failures are going to come from um, is really always, in a way, bound to fail. And so, again, a shift which has been a predominant shift, which is on anticipation, I think, needs to, to move to one much more on resilience and buildings um, resilient systems um, that can withstand failures because failures are, are bound to arise from unexpected sources, as been said. But then finally, the, no matter how much sort of model building you do and scenario testing that you do, the, the fact remains that the risks cried us in from all, all sides. And one of the, the fundamental problems and challenges for regulators in managing risk is using risk as the legitimating boundaries, it were, for state intervention in society or in, or in the financial system. If you say, well, how far can a regulator go in managing a financial system? Well, they should go so far as to, as to manage risk. Well, risk itself is, is contestable. Um, 
And so using it as a, um, as a boundary, as it were, a legitimating device is always going to be very unstable. If you contrast that to a, a market failure analysis, what should regulators do? They should go in and they should correct markets um, and market failures. So you've got a much clearer sort of diagnosis, prescription, remedy formula that one can follow. If you're talking about risk, then the issue then becomes, well, how safe is safe enough, as we know, but more to the point, who should be deciding? And so at the moment, we have a, um, a very strong shift that it should be regulators who be, should, should be deciding that. But I think what the crisis has shown is that regulators don't always have control over their own risk appetite um, and that they need a political license with which to operate. Um, and whereas at the moment the, the, the sort of political fervor is in favor of regulators stepping in to manage almost any imagined risk, um, it won't be long before that, that um, there's a swing against that. And in which case regulators will then be in the position or in danger of being in the position as they were before um, of being the sort of grannies who sit on the side telling people that they should really go out with an extra coat on because it's looking a bit chilly out um, and as being equally as disregarded um, as they were previously. I didn't, don't think I defaulted. <laughs> very good. Thank you very much, Julia, and thank you for um, helping us get back on track on the timetable. Uh, so we now move on to the Q&A panel discussion part of the programme. So it's very much over to you, um, failing which it might be over to me, but uh, I would just scan the audience briefly for hands going. Yes, sir. I wonder whether, um, before you ask your question, if you feel able, you could just tell us briefly who you are and where you're from. It's entirely <coughs> to you, but it might be quite illuminating. Is this working, first of all? Yes. I can hear you very well. Uh, Geoffrey Hosking, University College London. I'm an Emeritus Professor of History. I'd like to take up a point that Charles Goodhart raised, especially in his little epilogue, which is that quite a lot of economists in one way or another foresaw the recent crisis, but they were either ignored by their colleagues, or indeed may have suffered in some cases, certainly didn't get research funding and so on, uh, or maybe even got demoted or dismissed. There's a certain evidence of herd mentality about what's been going on, and I think this is a very serious issue, um, and one that needs to be addressed. Perhaps all large firms should have a licensed jester whose job it is to question uh, institutionalized assumptions. And in general, in Britain, it seems to me the universities ought to be playing this role. But again, we're up against this problem that economists who apply for research funding are probably going to have to follow the accepted models. Otherwise, they won't get any research funding. And that means that in the long run, they won't be promoted and may well be eased out. So I think this is a very serious problem of how we institutionalize dissent within the world of economics and firms. Any comments from the panel on observation? I, I think it's a, a, a real and rather difficult problem uh, because there, there is a inevitable tendency uh, for there to be a consensus uh, and people tend to herd around that. Um, and it's, it's quite difficult um, to establish sufficient diversity of views. Though there are times when I think there, there you will get a very considerable diversity of views, and I think in the aftermath of this crisis, uh, in my own subject, there will be 
uh, quite a furore and a diversity of views because the uh, consensus view uh, really was appears to have fallen rather on its face. Uh, yes, um, uh, very important issue. Um, I mean, a couple of observations uh, uh, to back up um, uh, the speaker's um, comments. Uh, the Journal of Finance, the premier fin academic finance journal, um, was known a few years ago to have um, turned down one paper, a good paper by um, quite a good economist, uh, turned down on the grounds that finance has nothing to say about social utility. Uh, and uh, second comment, uh, there is, um, I think, quite a lot of deference to elders and sometimes uh, um, dead professors even in the, in the States um, that I think probably in Europe uh, isn't quite so oppressive. Um, uh, the behaviourists um, who started writing their papers, which were the sort of uh, forerunners of a challenge to the efficient markets um, uh, as long ago as the early 80s, um, really took 10 years to, to make any headway at all and are still um, dismissed by the majority. Um, even at the LSE, when I came here, wanted to start my centre for the study of capital market dysfunctionality. Um, uh, one or two nameless um, senior professors here said, um, we, we like the idea and the funding, but could you really call it something else, please? It, it, uh, it's a bit embarrassing, and, and uh, let's have a competition for a better name. Um, three months later, the financial world started to fall apart and uh, I was no longer regarded as an eccentric but a little more mainstream. I think it's a very important question about institutionalising dissent and uh, if we can't do it in the university sector we have absolutely no right to um, point at corporate boards and say they should be more challenged and, uh, and criticise the uh, uh, risk management process, for example, and other aspects of organisational life. We have absolutely no moral high ground to do that. And um, I think there are various culprits for this, uh, this normalisation of academic life. I mean, normal sciences, of course, as Kuhn said, are an important part of the fabric of, of uh, intellectual endeavour. But uh, the normalisation is not. And uh, I blame the research assessment exercise, pure and simple. Uh, and uh, the processes we now have for ranking journals, which are uh, become, as, as you might guess, self-reinforcing and therefore have a certain kind of way of uh, deinstitutionalizing uh, dissent. Uh, it's true to say that some of the most interesting ideas uh, in all fields of inquiry have been published on the edges. Uh, we should do well to remember that. Paul, your reference to social utility does, of course, have echoes of Lord Turner's now famous remark about uh, banks being engaged in a number of activities which are socially useless. Um, uh, a number of us feel he might perhaps have been referring to the credit derivatives market, which seems to consist largely of banks taking bets amongst each other without having any particular exposure to any underlying risk, an activity which I understand the Chinese have now banned. Um, 
according to the FT of a couple of days ago. One wonders if they can do it, why can't we do it? If it is socially useless, which it would seem to be, and if it is extremely risky, is it right to keep putting this off and saying, well, we're going to provide for more capital one day, but we haven't worked out how much yet? Why don't we just get on and say, we can't do this anymore, because you can't really manage this risk. You've had years and years to try and manage it, and you haven't. Would you like me to come in on that? A couple of things. Uh, first of all, um, derivatives. The word means something that's derived from the primary markets. And if you have mispriced primary markets, the derivative markets are equally mispriced. And in fact, they inflate the whole scale of the distortion. So you've got this sort of endless growth of, um, of, of, um, of, of the size of the financial sector based on an expansion of something that never stabilizes. And it, it, the growth of the problem is, is just multiplied endlessly. It is extremely dangerous. Uh, there's some one aspect that really must be addressed quite promptly, in my view, which is until 2006, you could explain the price of most commodities, individual commodities, on the basis of the supply and demand for the underlying commodity, whether it's wheat, uh, oil, shipping futures, whatever. Uh, beginning, they were sometimes volatile, but it was because of harvests or, 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 or um, surges in, in demand for the underlying whatever. But beginning in the middle of this decade, the financial services sector started investing in commodities on a, on a big scale. Uh, both pension funds, in, uh, encouraged by their fund managers, the financial, in, the, the um, uh, investment banks, uh, the money came in passively invested, but also um, actively managed. And something like half a trillion dollars very quickly came into the commodities market. And the trouble is, it is highly destabilizing. And the damage it does to monetary policy, which is based on indicators of, of, of inflation, which are directly Im impacted by commodity prices, that is actually the most dangerous aspect in my view. And I do actually think that it's um, unethical for pension funds to allow them their investments to be put, for example, into, into commodity, even passive investing. Thank you. Uh, perhaps let me say a word in, on behalf of derivatives. Uh, where people have a direct interest, I think derivatives are both essential and useful. Um, and take the credit of Oldswap. Uh, there are a lot of banks which are fairly local. Because they're fairly local, they originate and hold loans on their books which are concentrated on a, sort of a rather narrow sort of set of assets. For example, I was quite heavily involved with Hong Kong and most of the Hong Kong banks other than the really big ones, their portfolios were stuffed full uh, with Hong Kong housing and Hong Kong property of various kinds. Now, insofar as you sell credit to full swaps, you are actually diversifying out of your narrow base, and you can then buy credit default swaps from other areas so you can diversify and protect and improve your position. So I think that a derivative 
structure where you have a direct interest is thoroughly and entirely uh, desirable. And moreover, besides uh, where you have a direct interest, you need to have market makers in these kind of instruments. The area which is undoubtedly more dubious is where people do not have a direct interest. And you can describe CDS as a form of insurance. And in the insurance market, uh, you're not allowed to insure. And I can't insure your life, um, because if I did, I would have an interest in coming quietly in the night and cutting your throat, which might not be an entirely desirable thing. Uh, so in insurance, and you could, should think of CDS as insurance, you're really only allowed to do this where you have a direct interest. Where you don't have a direct interest and you're not a market maker, then effectively you're, you're, you're a speculator. Now, the question of whether speculators are good or bad speculators is a very deep one. Uh, the good speculators are those who exerted information, uh, effort to try and find out more information and therefore use their information to drive prices closer to what should be a fundamental equilibrium. Now, frequently it's not for the kind of reasons that Paul said, but nevertheless there ought to be people out there trying to work out what prices ought to be. And if you don't have those people, then you're likely to find the prices may be even further from your equilibrium and more volatile than otherwise. Nevertheless, there are a whole series of bad speculators who will probably do momentum trading, who think they're basing their activities on information, but actually are basing their activities much more on simply what everybody else is doing, the kind of herding that we've been talking about. And these people certainly can and do drive prices a long way from, at times um, from what might be fundamental. Though my own view is that actually what kills you when you get a real crisis is not speculation, it's hedging. People suddenly realize that they're exposed to a whole series of risks that they haven't appreciated, and then they all get out simultaneously. And that really does bring about huge cracks in the markets. Um, and it's very, very difficult to distinguish between a speculator and a hedger. Um, so I, there undoubtedly are bad speculators, and there are speculators who drive things too far. But it's not as black and white um, as quite often the more popular sort of appeals suggest. I think I saw a hand a minute or two ago. Um, yes? Good evening. I am an economist, so I don't know whether I will be beaten up. Could evening. you speak up a bit? <laughs> um, I would like to raise a couple of points. Um, one concerns uh, one, one concerns one point of, that has been raised by Professor Goodhart is that uh, uh, we cannot expect uh, you know crisis to have the same shape uh, every time because the behavioral response is going to be di different every time. But, mm, you know, this is a quite a bit at odds, you know, with some of the, uh, some of the, you know, consensus that had emerged uh, recently, that is that more or less, you know, the, the, the financial crisis, at least, you know, 
the one involving the banking sector, you know, follow a certain patterns, you know, you know, the, you know, if there is a theory that has revived, has uh, experienced uh, uh, an astonishing revival is, you know, the Minsky theory uh, of, of crisis that is a fairly good description that fits quite a lot of crises, you know, within last centuries and, and these. So, in what sense the behavioral response is different? It seems that here, the bubbles and then the crisis, you know, uh, really reflect something deep, and, and the behavioral response seems to be consistently the same, you know, over centuries. The second point, you know, is something that uh, hasn't been, been raised, and in my opinion is quite important. It is agency theory uh, for uh, uh, regulators, let's say, you know. I mean, uh, in some uh, in some moments, you know, when the bubble was actually building, you know, the multiple bubbles were actually building, one could get the clear sensation that, you know, so-called independent regulators actually, you know, made all possible effort to get the party going, although, uh, you know, I'm not saying that there was an evidence of uh, bubbles because as we listened, you know, there, there were some papers, you know, around and many people were convinced, you know, that there was something wrong. Uh, but uh, if you look at monetary policy, for example, okay, it's not regulatory policy, but if you look at monetary policy in the U.S., you know, uh, after 2001, you know, I think, you know, you get the clear impression that there is something wrong, you know, that, that uh, interest rates were too low for quite a long time, you know, I mean, and how to explain, you know, this fact, you know, I mean, it's not a simple mistake, in my opinion, there is something deeper. I would like to have an opinion on this, maybe capture or whatever, you know. Let's listen. You get a comment on that? Uh, well, I'm glad you mentioned Hyminski. He's one of my favorite economists. Um, but I'm what Hai was really saying was that when you have good times, it actually sort of suckers everybody into taking on more risk. Um, because particularly since memories are fairly short, people always tend to extrapolate their own recent experience of good times into the future. And the key moment when we should have all known that disaster was about to strike was when our Prime Minister said that he had abolished boom and bust. <laughs> and that was absolutely straight down the Hyminsky playbook. Uh, it's just when everything, the thing, everyone believes that things are going wonderfully and that the future will be wonderful too that I everyone then overextends because risk appears to have been uh, removed from the system. But of course it hasn't. And because everyone overextends because they think risk has been removed, then you get the crash. And crashes occur not after bad times, but after a whole series of good times. And that was one of the key points that Hyminsky um, has stated. Um, it's very difficult being a regulator because if you are a regulator, you have to start worrying most when everyone else isn't worrying at all. And that's very difficult to do in a world in which we're all looking at everybody else and reading in the newspapers. You know, we all read the FT, 
and depending on what sort of conventional views are, it's very difficult to to to, to, to go against conventional views. And but that is exactly what a good regulator has got to do, and it's hard. I just come in on that. I think it's, it's important to recognise that regulation isn't um, is is partly a technical exercise, but it's also a political exercise. And so one of the one of the issues, as Charles said, is if you're if you're a regulator coming in, then you've you basically got to be saying, look, the party's got to stop. Now the point is, when you it's very hard because you're once dealing ultimately with uncertainty, you you know at some point for, that that it will all go horribly wrong because that's that's going to be the pattern, but you just don't know when. So the issue for the regulator is, you know, do you call it too soon? Now the issue is the same for firms actually, because if they do call too soon, then they step off, and in a, in a competitive market environment, then they get punished by the market for doing so. Um, but in a regulatory context, then um, you've got a significant political momentum. Politicians like good times, uh, particularly if elections are coming up or, or rolling in. Um, and for a regulator to to stand up and say, no, the party's got to stop now, is a very difficult thing to do. Now, there's a there's a one answer which we're, is people are moving towards in relation to that is to say, okay, well, let's be like monetary policy. Okay. So let's let's sort of constrain discretion so we try and depoliticize the, the decision of, of when to stop by developing metrics for, for assessing bubbles, et cetera, et cetera. Now, I'm, I'm not an economist, I, and I, I would have no, no grounds on which to say whether, whether any of that can be done. I just know that it seems to be very difficult from what it is that I've, I've read about. Um, but I have, a, I, have a sort of, I have a fear, actually, about the retreat to metrics, as it were, um, as a way of trying to um, depoliticize or rather hide the politicization um, of regulation in this way for two reasons. One, because um, the, the Goodhart's law, once you actually start using a, a metric for, some, um, for, for a reason other than for, from a unit of measurement, then behavior around it shifts, so it, it's, it, fails to be, it fails to be robust anymore. Um, but then the second thing is because it, it pretends, basically, that this is a technical exercise and it's not a political exercise. And so one may try to, to, to build in mechanisms, say, oh, you've got to be counter-cyclical, et cetera, you've got to sort of wheel back. But ultimately, as I say, you know, regulators need political license in which to, in which to operate. And if they don't actually have that backing, then, then they will be resigned back to being a series of, of worried aunts and, and being called in front of their legislatures if they're, if they seem to be cracking too, down too hard and, and requiring the party to stop, um, particularly if, if they suffer first move a disadvantage, as it were, and they choose to move outside of, um, out of step with the rest of the, the sort of international community. So. Thank you. Yes. Hello. Uh, I have a question about the public finance, the relationship between the hard public finance and the bank risk. Uh, I want to know uh, the, the words, uh, the words uh, financial crisis root, root cause is uh, uh, we haven't managed the bank risk or the root cause is uh, uh, American, American, said, American government said it's imbalance between the uh, emerging uh, market and the uh, developed countries such uh, for instance the American should uh, cut spending and uh, China should uh, spend more so what's your opinion about the look cost of the award? Thank you. All these questions are definitely for economists rather than lawyers, so I look around for colleagues here to help. Well, uh, on, on, on China, um, I, I do think that there is a need for 
Chinese Chinese uh, authorities to start switching demand more towards domestic demand uh, and away from uh, net exports. Uh, there's a general view that this has been due to um, uh, the Chinese households saving enormous quantities of an enormous proportion of their income because of a uh, uh, of a shortage of social services, no pensions, no health insurance, <coughs> and all that. And whenever I go to China, um, I uh, I uh, uh, tend to tell my colleagues or my whoever I meet there that the diff problem with China is it's not a sufficiently a socialist economy because it doesn't provide enough social services. Uh, but a large proportion of um, the savings in China arise as a result of savings made by corporations. And one of the issues there is that uh, Chinese corporations should be put under much greater uh, incentives uh, to shift a, a significant proportion of their profits, which have been very large, uh, back either to the state in the form of corporation tax uh, or in the form of dividends. Uh, because there's no profit maximization, and because the heads of the Chinese SOEs uh, tend to move uh, up a political hierarchy rather than solely being concerned with profit maximization. There's a tendency for Chinese uh, state-owned enterprises to amass as much money as they can in order to expand their total output, the total size, rather than going for, uh, for profit maximization. Um, yes, indeed, uh, I, there needs to be a lot of changes uh, to deal with the fundamental imbalances, uh, both in the West and in Asia both sides need to undertake adjustment. I wonder if I could just... Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. Thank you. Um, Mike referred to a um, knowledge crisis in his presentation. I'd like to ask for the panelists' views on the future role of education in responding to this knowledge crisis. Uh, when I reflect uh, over 10 years ago, Martin Taylor standing on the stage here um, as an executive in banking with a background in supermarket retail uh, manufacturing, which was thought to bestow insight into organizational management and uh, supply chain. Uh, in the recent uh, sort of aftermath of the uh, credit crunch. Um, such figures were criticized for not being professional bankers. Professional bankers, however, with backgrounds in hard reference disciplines of economics, finance, and mathematics were criticized for miseducation. There are many figures here tonight from the financial services. Where should they send their people to be educated? What should they study? And how are they, how are they to focus uh, the minds of their people on the level of connectivity that we're discussing tonight. Very much for you, Mike, but, but others may want to comment. Well, just very quickly, come and, come and do my course, AC412. Um, everything you want to know. I should study, study law myself, so others may have other views. Well, uh, just one um, 
individual, I mean, Adair Turner, he's, I think, a historian. Uh, he's certainly not an economist, but um, he, um, he comes at the issues uh, with a highly, uh, a razor-sharp uh, intellect. And in a way, it's almost, um, in my own experience, actually, the people who understood uh, about the dysfunctionality arguments tended not to be economists. They tended to be rather bright physicists or uh, uh, in, in other disciplines. One thing that the study of law should teach you is that relying on assumptions which are obviously wrong is a waste of time. This seems to have escaped the Wall Street community. It would seem. Questions, I think, yeah. I have a question for Martin Charles on modifying remuneration lawyers. Sorry, my name is Crispin Southgate, an institutional investment advisor is the name of my company and that's what we do. If you look at the situation, the case of Queen's Moat, which had a relatively simple balance sheet of hotels in Germany on one side and German debt, German Deutschmark debt on the other, and that all, to put it bluntly, went rather pear-shaped. They had to pay back in a sterling business the German Deutschmark debt but the hotels in Germany weren't worth quite as much as, if you like, the mark-to-market gave them the impression they were when they paid a dividend. And under English law, as it was at the time, if you paid a dividend out of profits that weren't realized and you didn't anticipate some of the losses that might occur, but you did anticipate some of the profits, you could be pulled up in front of a court and asked personally to pay it back. Do you think that if the lawyers got together with um, some of Charles's Financial Markets Group economists, and started looking at better tests for judging what is truly realized profit in large institutions that balloon their balance sheets, number one. And number two said that anybody with performance-related remuneration is a participator of an equity character, and therefore a bonus is like a dividend and shouldn't be paid except out of distributable realized profits, that you would do two things. You would reduce the volume that could come out of the barrel and secondly, would therefore possibly modify the behavior who enjoy drinking it if it comes out of the tap and therefore putting all sorts of stuff in to give the impression that there's great beer there for all who are currently employed to enjoy and with no prospect of having to pay it back. Well, I do like a technical question. Um, yes, uh, I think lawyers actually do have rather more to offer uh, in this area than they're given credit for. One thing that lawyers do, of course, quite regularly and very irritatingly is ask very difficult and awkward questions. Worse than that, they often stand there until they've got a proper answer to them. I will sort of demonstrate my skill at this by failing to answer your question properly. But um, it does seem to me quite striking how little commentary one has on the role of internal lawyers within the banks, the role of the general counsel, who is responsible for the due diligence exercises, on which the Walker Review has a lot to say, that has nothing at all to say about the role of the general counsel. Very strange. Um, why do we see so few lawyers as NEDs on the boards of banks? Could it be because they ask awkward questions? I do wonder sometimes. Lawyers could also perhaps have more to say on the changes that we've had in the law in this country that have actually stimulated um, some of the things that now concern us. We worry about banks behaving like casinos, it was only 20 years ago we changed the law to allow them to indulge in transactions that hitherto would have been unenforceable because they infringed the gaming acts. And now they behave like casinos. Well, are we surprised? Why should we be surprised? We want to said, go out, 
and indulge in gaming transactions. That's what they did. We allowed, we relaxed the Royal Financial Assistance. So now, we, after the private equity boom, we have a, a large number of companies that are extremely heavily indebted. We haven't yet seen the outcome of the consequences of that. So there's quite a lot that lawyers could be saying on this, but you won't get lawyers in private practice to stand up and criticize banks. It won't happen. Please, it's to people like me, I suppose. Sometimes I feel a bit lonely. But I, I think there is room for a, a greater legal um, contribution. I'll leave it at that. I should actually come in as well as a, as a, as a lawyer here. I think you're, I mean, you're, you're right in, in the sense of this, the, the way in which the remuneration debate is constructed, it could be constructed very differently. You could, um, I mean, I've, I've read suggestions that you, you have removed limited liability in relation to certain equity owning, um, you know, senior management, etc. Um, and there's issues, as you say, around the dividend payment and, and parallels to be, you know, to be drawn between when you're allowed to pay dividend payments and when you're allowed to pay bonuses. There are legal issues then also around the um, payback of not just the deferral of bonuses, but the payback over certain times and how you can construct contracts, which you, which you can, because you can construct contracts almost any way you want, really, uh, within certain parameters, as you know, to, to allow for payback. So I think there's a certain amount of sort of technical technical work that can be done there, but I think there are other um, broader issues which, which come in partly as to the nature of, um, of the role of law itself within this. I think it's fantastic actually that the credit derivatives market uh, is based um, in legal terms on the opinion of one QC who declared that the credit derivatives are not actually insurable insurance contracts because of the lack of insurable interest and they pay out not only, they, they, pay, they don't pay out only in case of, of, of provable loss. Um, and in terms of how the markets create legal instruments which are legal only because everybody believes them to be so, um, I think is, is you know, a, is an, a, a sort of excellent area of study which, which also isn't, isn't investigated. But I think there's a broader point here about institutionalization of, of opinions and of, of views. And it, it goes back to the, the education point that, and the other points that were made earlier, which is those that often have the most contribute here to contribute here also have banks as their biggest clients. Um, and there's going to be a certain lack, there is a certain um, resistance, as it were, to um, turning around and criticising perhaps some of your biggest clients and, and, and the way that they behave and wanting to um, sort of, your, they're not only your biggest clients as institutions, but as high net worth individuals, they're very lucrative clients as well. And you might not necessarily want to uh, curtail that high net worth by um, proposing things which are going to severely penalise their uh, bank balances. So I think there's, there's also there's a bigger question here about the institutionalisation of opinion, I think, as well within the legal community uh, and not just in the um, academic community. It's not only lawyers, it's accountants as well. Mm -hmm. And one of, the, one of the main drivers of what happened uh, was uh, the generalised adoption of mark-to-market, mm -hmm. which effectively meant that when asset prices were going up, even though this might in the longer term be unsustainable, this went right through not only to capital but to profits. And they were paying bonuses and dividends and so on out of what they thought under mark-to-market were actually higher profits and a stronger capital position. And when the uh, asset prices turned round, then of course everyone was shown to be uh, that it wasn't really so. But the great difficulty here is that if you don't like mark-to-market, what is a better accounting yardstick? And the, the accounting problems are just as difficult 
as the um, as the legal problems. Yeah, just as a, a postscript to, to that discussion, uh, one of the things that astonished me as I looked at. Uh, risk management practice over the last uh, five or six years is <clears throat> uh, the way that risks around remuneration completely dropped through uh, the hole, as it were, uh, and was not covered. Re the REMCO dealt with the level of remuneration for senior executives but had nothing to do with risk, uh, and these issues were kind of not to be discussed uh, at risk committees. So it was one of those issues which felt <clears throat> falls through the, the, the hole in practice, and yet it's lecture one of any decent uh, risk management course. So that, that was truly, truly a surprise, and of course now Walker is uh, attempting to plug that gap. <clears throat> Hello. Um, my name is Laura. Um, I work for the Chartered Institute of Housing, uh, which is the representative body of the housing professionals. Um, and I just uh, was struck by something um, in the, in the uh, presentation of the third speaker um, when he was talking about the, uh, this underlying belief um, that um, investors and banks and capital um, funders uh, had uh, relative to the price of houses, housing prices, and the fact that during the last 50, 50 years in the, state, in the United States, housing prices had been going up, and so uh, there, there was this assumption that they would continue to go up. Uh, but then you, you mentioned that, um, uh, and if there was any problem, uh, what we have is still the house that has a value. But it seems to me that it's a very, very basic error, because if something goes wrong, what is the thing that can go wrong other than the price going down? And if the price goes down, then the value of that house reduces. So what you have, what, you, what, what you're left with is a less value. So I think in the, in the behaviors and in the re reasonments of the investors, something was missing or, um, I don't know, it's um, a comment more than a, than a question. Thank you. There's a question here, and we may comment on both at the same time, if that works. Yes. Thank you. Um, Stephen Butt, I'm a, um, an investment manager with Silchester International, and I really wanted to make an observation because I think that there will be many theories put forward, and, and I think we're making the whole thing far too complex. Um, there still seems to be a residual belief that one can actually expect people within the banks to regulate themselves. Um, and that is directly contrary, for example, to the agency theory that was talked about earlier. Um, no banker is, is going to argue for more capital and less risk. I mean, it, it simply doesn't happen. So it has to be taken out of their hands, and it falls with the regulators and, and nowhere else. And, Okay, regulation can be lonely, but um, that's the nature of the job. I mean, it's no good a soldier saying it's kind of lonely when people start firing at me um, and immediately start retreating. That is the job. Um, and the key to it, and I think only one person's really alluded to it and almost apologetically, is capital. Because that is largely impersonal. If people want to put more risk on their balance sheet, they have to put up more capital. And of course, the ratios have been too low. If they want to have derivatives, which have been described as even more risky, then they have to put up even more capital. And that's the best way of providing buffers so that um, third parties don't get hurt, the state doesn't have to bail them out, the equity shareholders will have to do so, and um, to introduce more confidence in the system. It also has other benefits. For example, we talk about remuneration. But remuneration can only be paid after capital has been serviced. 
Now, obviously, if you don't have to put up much capital and you can generate a lot of revenue on the derivatives book, then you feel that you can pay it all out because what has been the cost involved? But if you have to put up a large tranche of capital to back that, that has to be paid for first. And there isn't the room for the um, unreasonable discretionary bonuses. Now, if you've serviced your cost of capital and you've been properly capitalized and you've made lots of money, well, then, of course, there's no real problem with sharing that out and paying it out. But it all comes back to capital, uh, not relying on um, judgment of bankers to get these things right. Comments from the of course, the, the, one of the great tricks that bankers have pulled off is that they've got a way of, of relying on capital without having to service it. They rely on the implicit guarantee of the taxpayer. That's the best form of capital you could have if you're a bank, and that's what they've got at the moment. Precisely. Yes, no, quite so. Yeah. No. Well, I, I agree with you about more capital and relating capital uh, to systemic risk in a more in a more efficient way than we have. But um, um, you you were saying that regulators like soldiers are there to be shot at. Soldiers at least get medals and the thanks of a grateful nation. Um, I used to tell my graduate class on monetary policy, whatever you do, don't become a regulator, because it's badly paid. If you succeed and there are no crises, nobody thanks you because they don't notice you. And if you fail and there are crises, you get absolutely pilloried all over the place. And it's a dreadful job. It's underpaid, under, you know, there are no thanks. And when you've actually done something rather splendid and managed to avoid um, some dreadful crisis. Usually, for confidential reasons, you can't say anything about it. And nobody actually knows that you've done a good job. Um, you know, you do, do, do. Uh, I, well, I think, they have a, I think they have a lousy job. Uh, and if regulators got paid on anything like the same scale as bankers, if our top regulator got, shall we say, five million pounds a year and a bonus if you know, there wasn't another real crash, you'd probably get a lot more and a lot better regulators in the regulatory system. We need to pay our, our bankers fewer bonuses and our regulators more bonuses. I think um, NED should get be paid on the basis of bonuses. So. Yes. My name is Elizabeth Jones. I'm a taxpayer and the owner of a very shrunk pension fund. And uh, I just wondered if any of us get out uh, to supplement this evening whether you would recommend Enron or the power of yes bearing in mind that the power of yes is in the subsidised theatre and Enron is coming into the West End and you'll have to pay market rates. I would recommend you go and see War Horse, <laughs> which is better than any of them, I think. But, uh, any views on the theatre? 
Actually, I've only seen the Parab yet, I've not seen the other one, which they do say is better. Yes? Uh, I uh, actually know very little about economics. My background is in film and technology, so please forgive a naive question. But um, it seems to me that the background context to all of this is the job of risk management is going to become more difficult because there are more risk takers in society. At a fundamental level, we're geared to now center our lives around monetary wealth. This is how we define status. And you either do make it into the echelons of what's termed success or you don't. That encourages risk-taking and short-termism. Your life is not worth living unless you've reached that level of attainment. Certainly bankers seem to think that way. Uh, all the way down to the bottom of society, 50 cents album, get rich or die trying. This is what children are brought up on. So we can expect more risk endemically in the culture. That's not an economic point, but it, it did seem that the two comments made, which make an awful lot of sense, are about the point at which remuneration crystallizes so that you're encouraged to take a longer-term view and also you value the status not of the money you've made but of the general progress of the institution and in a greater sense the market and the country in which you exist. Restoring that can only be done by um, essentially attaching the risk and the reward together to the same person. In the same time when you've achieved you've really achieved something. You haven't achieved, I got out of this place, it went down, but I got out. You've achieved really in the way which humans are meant to, as a group, altruistically, together. So I would like to hear just, I, I think, these very good ideas about when dividends are paid and so on, what ideas you might have about the way in which that remuneration can be attached to actual profits crystallizing and accruing. Thank you. No, it's a very nicely articulated, uh, not at all naive um, point. Uh, so thank you very much. I mean, I think uh, I think it's true to say actually that share-based remuneration does achieve some of that, and uh, quite a lot of the, the remuneration component of senior executives was lost uh, through the decline in share values. Uh, but you're absolutely right, and there are you know considerable efforts at the moment to try and uh, align the longer term with uh, remuneration packages and uh, I sit in a, on a remuneration committee and uh, we, we struggle with these things uh, all the time. One of the, the strange um, uh, episodes that right at the moment is in, in some ways through this very tough period uh, the executives have really shown their class uh, and there is no way to reward them for that because uh, all the metrics are geared to uh, bear market type uh, type um, phenomena. So it's quite interesting. You don't have to feel sorry for them at all, but it's quite interesting that uh, precisely when you want to reward people for exceptional performance in staying afloat, um, you can't do it. Um, just, just to come in, I mean, there, there are technical aspects about, you know, the, the linking of remuneration to um, to risk and reward, which 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 people are looking at at the moment. I think one of the the things to bear in to bear in mind, and I think one of the other reasons why why it's important comes back to this issue of the perception of risk. I think it's worth bearing in mind that for a lot of the the people involved at, in the markets at the time, there was, and, and this is where I think the moral hazard argument really doesn't have that much weight is, is that they never really thought that they were taking that much risk at all. And so this idea that there were rational calculating actors that were sitting there thinking, well, do you know what, it could all go hairily wrong, but if it does, the taxpayer will bear, bail it out, wasn't actually necessarily part of a conscious assessment because they didn't actually think they were taking that much risk. Um, and so 
again, it comes down to your perceptions of risk. Now, if it's... Um, if the linking of long-term pay to reward helps them to, to recalibrate, as it were, their assessment of whether they're really taking on that much risk, then paradoxically, um, the fact that they don't think they are should incentivize them to actually sign up to the longer lock-in periods, as it were. Um, however, I don't think people are going to be necessarily that consistent um, in how they see it, but I, I, think it, I think it is something to, to bear in mind. Well, time has moved on. We're over our deadline. Um, but I'll use my chairman's discretion to allow one last question on a strict condition that's very short. Yeah. Um, hi, my name is Philip, and rather appropriately, after Professor Goodhart's last comment, I work at the Bank of England. Um, but I was going to ask quickly your opinions on John Kay's recent proposal of a Tobin tax by splitting up the casino <coughs> operations with payment services both in terms of its likely pragmatism and also in providing financial services. So, yes, if each member of the panel would like to give a short answer, that would round things off very nicely. Paul? Um, anything that throws a bit of grit into the system and damps down the amount of trading would be a good thing. And you could start, I think, rather than the Tobin tax, with simply bringing back um, the idea uh, that was around... 20 years ago, of uh, removing tax exemption from pension funds deemed to be trading rather than investing. Uh, it won't happen, and in my view it shouldn't happen. The idea of putting on a tax in order to make markets less efficient is, I think, rather weird. And what would actually occur would be that it would mean that the market maker function uh, would be too expensive to undertake. So you would get much higher bid-ask spreads and a great deal of additional volatility, which wouldn't actually put off the speculator at all, because the speculator is concerned about larger movements in price. It would just make uh, financial transactions for everybody uh, a great deal more expensive. But and I do appreciate that there is a desire by NGOs and others for a nice source of additional funding, and I've got one. And my source of additional funding is to effectively put a very small tax uh, charge on every addressee, on every email. It would cut out spam immediately. It would mean that, which is socially useless, totally, and it would mean that people would actually have to think about the number of people who actually need to get all this information. There's far too much socially useless use of the ether for the web. So let's tax uh, email addressees and not tax uh, financial markets. A lot of people would drink to that. Julia? No, no. And Paul? No, no. Mike, yes? Yep. Can I make a final point? I mean, it's not really an answer to, to that, that question, but uh, Julia mentioned uh, the work of Charles Perrault and the, the normal accident theory, which is when a, you know, a system becomes incomprehensible. And in some of his latest work, which is really a response to the phenomenon of Hurricane Katrina, um, he's advocating the, advocating the deconcentration of assets uh, in, a, in a particular setting. And it seems to me that... Uh, that is uh, an argument that might apply uh, in the solution set for, for this financial crisis. Uh, it's been toyed with and I think is not going to fly and be rejected. And I think it's a pity that, uh, that that argument doesn't have more, more legs, that rather than investing more in, uh, 
in risk management and uh, increased capital rules, we could just uh, uh, restructure the environment. Julia. Okay, I just have one thing on unintended consequences, which is that if you impose a tax on, on the, um, the transactions, etc., then you, you give governments an incentive to ensure that you have many, many transactions occurring because they're reaping a tax benefit from it. And so I just worry about the incentive effects for governments, actually, and the way that they design their tax structures um, and the impacts that that will then have on the, um, the regulation and then the markets themselves. Okay, well, we probably need to round things up um, quite outrageously using Chairman's discretion. My last remark would be that I, I can't help feeling there's a lot of displacement activity going on. Tax this, require extra capital for that, risk manage this. I think the best answer is, as they used to say, just say no. Anyway, thank you all very much for coming this evening. Could I ask you to show your appreciation for the panel? Thank you.